Welcome to Stats and Stories. I'm Rosemary Pennington, joined by John Baylor. And John, I've been following the news, and it seems like cases of flu and COVID are kind of going back up. Yeah, you only thought that we'd be we would finish talking about this four years ago. Yeah, right. Like the hope was that 2021 was going to be the year it was all over, and here we are. And there's still a story to tell. There's still aspects of, of things that, that we're trying to do to, to, to prevent disease. It is, and I think it, this is maybe a really good time to perhaps revisit one of our older episodes um, that is related to this very issue. Yeah, we were, we were fortunate also that, that this particular episode that we're going to air again with Harry Stevens was one that we, we both were enthusiastic about including as part of the Statistics Behind the Headlines book. So, so it just made sense for us to think about having this drop again this week. That's right. And so what you're about to listen to is an episode we recorded with Harry Stevens talking about a story he did about visualizing flattening the curve for the Washington Post. And then next week, you're going to hear John and I reading our chapter from the book Statistics Behind the Headline uh, that is framed by this very story and conversation. So by saying that, is that a threat or a promise? (laughs) I don't know. It depends (laughs) with our listeners, right? A little of both. As researchers and medical professionals struggle to get a handle on the COVID-19 pandemic, journalists struggle to tell the pandemic's story, with many news outlets increasingly turning to infographics and data visualizations to help them do so. Visualizing data for news is the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me are regular panelists, John Baylor, Chair of Miami Statistics Department, and Richard Campbell, former Chair of Media, Journalism, and Film. Our guest today is Harry Stevens. Stevens is a graphics reporter at the Washington Post and produced a story in March about how disease outbreaks spread exponentially and how to flatten curves. It's since become the most read story in Washington Post history. Harry, thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to uh, be here virtually with you guys. Yeah. So your story um, went viral, and I remember seeing it everywhere. And it has so many different kinds of, I mean, so many different visualizations. How did you, as you were thinking through the story, decide how you were going to visualize this information? Sure. So the idea for the, so, so basically for for people who haven't seen the story, it features a series of very simple simulations of uh, bouncing balls moving around in a rectangle. And uh, when the balls collide either with the walls of the rectangle or with each other, they bounce off in another direction. And so you start out by making one of those balls quote unquote sick, which is just to say making it a different color than the rest of them. And then when a sick ball collides with a healthy ball, the healthy ball gets sick too, or you know becomes the, the same color as a sick ball. And uh, so you can watch these simulations play out over the course of 30 seconds or so and see how the disease spreads uh, first slowly with the first infection being transmitted uh, and then very, very quickly. 
And then you can introduce certain parameters into the simulation. So uh, you can try to put, a, put up a big wall in between some of the balls so that they can't get to each other. Or you can make it so that some of the balls uh, don't move. And by changing the parameters of this, the simulation, you can sort of show ways to disrupt the network effect of, of a spreading disease um, and give people a sense of how to you know, s slow down uh, the spread of something through a network. And uh, so the idea of, of the bouncing balls came to me actually just from uh, sort of some fun experimentations that I'd been doing on my computer on the, over the weekend. Um, I'm not, uh, I don't have like a computer science background. So a lot of the code that I've learned to write has just been from me doing these sorts of experiments on the weekend and reading tutorials online. And uh, so one of the things that I was always curious about was collision detection. And, you know, so what happens when two circles, you know, occupy the same space, they're moving at a certain angle and a certain speed. So when they've collided with each other, you know, what happens and, and how do you represent that in code? Uh, and so I had done some experiments with it, actually a series of experiments. I think the first one I did was two years ago and it was just like, how to make it so that if a circle hits the side of a screen, it bounces off in the other direction, which like might be easy if you know geometry, but I had to look up all the formulas for like what, what is the angle of reflection based on the angle of incidence and then you know how to make the ball bounce. Uh, and then once you've done that, then you have to figure out how to make the balls bounce off of each other when they hit each other, which is much more complicated. And I, th I think like a year later, I was like, yeah, I wanna come back and revisit this code. And uh, so I got the balls to bounce off of each other. And I mean, there are things that are probably more interesting to like computer science people than to maybe all of your listeners, but you know, just making the, the algorithm efficient because you have to compare the position of every ball to every mm -hmm. other ball at each tick. And, uh, but there are ways to make it more efficient so that you can add more balls to the simulation and it doesn't crash your computer. And there's all kinds of interesting things here. So I had just been doing these kinds of experiments long before uh, COVID-19 was a word that anybody knew. And, uh, and uh, I just thought that they were fun to look at. They're fun to watch. And I think that, that that's kind of part of the key to the success of the story is that like even if you're not talking about a disease, even if you're not trying to teach somebody anything it's just visually engaging to watch these balls bounce around and so that can draw people in or give them a, a door to step through into what it is that i'm trying to teach them so um yeah so like i had the bouncing ball thing already working i'd already written the code for it mostly there were still some bugs like sometimes the balls would get stuck together and i had to figure out how to make it so that didn't happen but uh it was mostly that part was done so mm -hmm. we were in a room with a, with some editors and some other graphics reporters talking about you know like how can we move our coverage forward of of COVID nineteen um, and it was early March so at that point like uh, the president was still not taking it seriously uh, a lot of people uh, across the country still hadn't internalized the idea that like it wasn't the problem wasn't necessarily them getting sick the problem was that they could pass it on to somebody else like there were still people like uh, spring breakers who were saying like you know i just want to party and i don't care if i get sick as if that was like somehow a brave position to have but it's like dude it's not about you getting sick it's about like killing my grandma 
Mm-hmm. And uh, so um, when you when you have these simulations, you can see very easily that like uh, one transmission earlier on can infect somebody all the way across on the other side of the simulation very, very quickly, even though Mm -hmm. the original sick person never had any interaction with the the healthy person over on the other side. And so I think just seeing that maybe um, was something that a lot of people needed to internalize this idea that like things can spread very, very quickly in a network if we don't do anything to try to slow them down. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, so, so Harry, I, I mean, the, the question that was really burning when I saw this was, uh, you know, when will the vaccine or effective treatment be available for, si- for simulitis? I mean, you know, this is, <laughs> no, I, 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 I thought it was really effective that you, you, you basically abstracted the, the kind of key features of this, this story of infection. You know, you didn't, get, you didn't get caught up on kind of all the other nuance that right. ha- that's part of this, you know, how long people are, you know, would, would they be contagious? You know, what's the pool of people that are, you know, susceptible to this? And I, I thought that, you know, how did you kind of boil that down? What were some of the things that you thought about in sort of extracting those key key features? Well, actually, so uh, after publishing this story, I worked on another story about these so-called SEIR models, uh, mm-hmm. which for, for those of you who aren't familiar with those, it's, Um, It's like an agent-based model where uh, people or the agents pass through these sort of four stages of the disease. So they started as susceptible, which is the S, and then they become exposed, which is the E, and then they become infected, which is the I, and then R stands for like removed, uh, which means either they've recovered or they've died. Uh, And so um, when you're building these models, there are like certain parameters that you have to take into account like with a real so you're trying to model a real disease so you're like how long is the uh, uh, infectious period like how long do people remain infectious for how long is the incubation period like how how long does it take from when you first are exposed to when you become and anyway there's all sorts of uh, what's the contact rate and various other parameters that you have to build into these models to get them to reflect anything close to reality and even then like you know it's a model so it's not supposed to be reality it's just supposed to give us some idea about uh, potential future outcomes and uh, anyway so that's a long way of saying that I didn't know any of that when I started doing this story. <laughs> and even by the time I published it, like when I published it, I didn't even know what an SEIR model was. And I actually think that that was um, ironically kind of helpful for me, like that I didn't know how complex uh, it would it would be or all of the things that I could take into account. Like I, it made it so it, there was no way I could do anything other than something that was really simple. Like I knew that I wanted it to show something spreading through a network because I thought that the idea of exponential growth was not something that was intuitively understood, certainly not by me and I don't think by most people. And so if you could just show that, then uh, then that's really all that I wanted to show. And, and um, one conversation I had, I was talking to Lauren Gardiner, who is an epidemiologist at Johns Hopkins University, uh, like way back in February. Um, and we were just talking about the model that her team uses. Uh, to try to forecast the growth of, of coronavirus. And it was very, very early on at that point. So, so much was unknown. But uh, she was talking about just the complexity of the model that they use and, and how it, it was computationally extremely in- intensive. Uh, and so, like, it would be hard to run that in a browser. And that was the conversation that really helped me understand that, like, there was no way that I could model a real disease. And that's where the idea mm-hmm. for, for simulitis came from. 
just like we're not trying to forecast a real disease we don't have to map the ticks of the simulation to any kind of real unit of time you know because it's not like a second of the simulation represents a day or an hour or a month like there's no mapping to real time because there doesn't need to be right like that's not what you're trying to show you're not trying to forecast an actual disease you're just trying to show people how network effects work and how to slow mm -hmm. them down and so i think that by having a, a very simple goal um, that helped like really uh, limit like what it, what the design space like it helped focus it and limit what I was trying to accomplish and that made it so it was easier to teach something that was um, like simple but important. So where did this come from? Because you both are able to do this, but you're also a very good writer and reporter. Thank you. So that's unusual in journalists, don't you think? It is unusual. I I think less unusual uh than than maybe it was a decade ago um i think that so i started out uh in journalism as a writer and a reporter which i think has been really valuable for me because i learned about like how to collect information how to interview sources how to frame a story before i learned any of the graphics and code stuff mm -hmm. um so uh all the graphics and code stuff is building on top of that foundation that I already had and like how to explain things to people, how to tell mm -hmm. a story um, and how to find sources. So I'm glad that I did it in that order. Um, I also got like I went to journalism school uh, in 2013, 2014, and I took a class on data visualization. So I had never really thought very deeply about like information design and uh, mm -hmm. That classic really opened my eyes up to how powerful it could be, uh, how much information you can tell, you can communicate visually. Mm -hmm. um, and so, like, taking that class was really helpful to me. It also introduced me to JavaScript. I'd never written code really before. And, like, we just did some basic stuff, but it was enough of a building block to, like, you know, once you know about Stack Overflow, then you can pretty much learn anything. <laughs> You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking to Washington Post graphics reporter Harry Stevens. So you, have, before the Washington Post, were working in Axios and have worked other, a few other places and have done uh, a number of different kinds of data visualizations. When you are approaching a story that is going to be data rich, that you want to help an audience understand through this sort of graphic um, presentation, how do you think about, how, how do you approach that, that storytelling? Because you are, even though it is a graphic, right, and you're dealing with data, you still at the end of the day have to communicate some kind of story. So how do you approach that when you're thinking about the kind of graphics you're going to use in a story? Sure. So, uh, I mean, graph, like making a, a news graphic is similar to writing a news story in that like you have to consider the information that's going in uh, and like how you're collecting it. So like if you're just um, writing a story and reporting it, like you go find sources, you interview them, you maybe find documents, you read the documents, figure out what they mean. Um, whereas with a graphic story, usually you're finding data sets, um, but you have to interrogate a data set with the same rigor that you would interrogate a, a source or a document. So you have to figure out how that, um, that data set is uh, deficient, how the data was collected, um, whether there are certain biases that are inherent in the way that that data was collected. So the same, really the same kind of reporting 
um, that you would need to apply to any any sort of journalistic endeavor. You need to apply when you're working with a data set. Um, and then once you sort of analyze the data, I mean, so if you're tell if you if you're doing a story with data, it's not like you just um, have a data set and you're just playing around with it, like for whatever might come out of it. Like usually you have a hypothesis and you're trying to see if the analysis bears out that hypothesis. And like a lot of times it doesn't and then you don't have a story. And that's the same with any kind of reporting. Like, you know, you, you might think that something is going on at City Hall, but then you interview everybody and they're like, no, nah, that's not happening. And you don't have a story. So um, but anyway, so once you've done that ana analysis, like for me, the graphic side of the thing is, is really the fun part. Um, I try to make things that just look really cool and that are like engaging to people and really fun. And uh, so, I mean, part of it is like, uh, I can only make things that are cool if they communicate the central idea. So uh, like all of the aesthetic decisions for me come from the, uh, the purpose of what I'm trying to communicate. Um, so there's like, I don't know if you guys play chess, but in chess, there's, uh, there's people say like, um, tactics flow from a superior strategy. So I look at that in the same way as like, um, with making a graphic, uh, the aesthetic decisions flow from like your communication strategy. So like, what is it that I want to tell people? Like, what do I want them to get out of this? And then, uh, you know, tr try to delete everything that doesn't serve that purpose. And then like once I've really gotten that, then it's like refining it. So, you know, making it look beautiful or making it look clean or, you know, adding some kind of visual flair. But generally, like, I don't know, it's, it's a balance, right? Because like you do in the news business, like you need to make something that catches people's eye and like is really cool. But you also need to communicate something as well. So, um, you know, they, they have to kind of work hand in hand. But I guess if you had to get rid of one. Um, you'd get rid of like the, the flair because you need to communicate something more like that's the most important thing. I'm, I'm curious as you as you go through these these types of representations, how do you, you know, dealing with uncertainty in the inputs? You know, I've seen that you've looked at sort of a couple of different scenarios that might play out in a simulation. Do you have other ways that you, you help recognize and convey the fact that that these models do have imprecision? They do have uncertainty that are a part of it. And the, the input that's provided to these models isn't known and, and possibly can't be known. So how, what are some of the things that, that you've done to try to convey that uncertainty and variability? A lot, every, every journalist, I think, or, or like graphics journalist that's covering COVID-19 right now is grappling with this problem. Um, so one thing I did, uh, another story I did that I mentioned earlier was about how these SEIR models work. And uh, so one of the things that we did there was, again, we used the fake disease because we weren't, again, trying to say anything about COVID-19. We were just trying to help people understand how the models work. Uh, so we used simulitis again. And uh, the this story, by the way, did not do nearly as well in terms of traffic, but I think that it, it was a bit more, um, I don't know, I, I think that for the people who, who liked it and really wanted to dig in, I think that they enjoyed it. Um, but for that one, we just let people adjust the parameters themselves to see how that might affect the output. And then we tried to explain it using quotes from real epidemiologists that we had interviewed about, like, 
how grappling with uncertainty is at the very core of what they do. Um, so like uh, the, the purpose of these models is not to like open up your crystal ball and tell people exactly what's going to happen. It's just to help people who need to make important decisions understand like the range of possibilities and like how their decisions might affect the outcome. Um, so like, you know, I can't, uh, no epidemiologist can tell you, you know, how many people are going to die of COVID-19 or, or how many people are going to be infected or when we're going to hit the peak and when it's going to start going down. Like there's just no way to do that with any kind of certainty. Um, like even people who have, who predict the weather, for example, like get it wrong all the time. And they've had right. many, many, many more decades to deal with that phenomena, um, and to prepare their models and, and it's still, and there's probably more certainty going in and it's still like, you just can't get it right every time because, you know, nature is chaotic and it's hard to predict the future. But the point is like, you know, again, not to predict the future, but just to understand like how our decisions can affect the range of possible outcomes. And so that's like one thing that that story tried to communicate. Um, other places have done a pretty good job. I think like 538 now has a uh, tracker of all of the different model outputs and so just comparing them with each other i think is useful like wow there's a really really wide range of possible outcomes that these things are predicting and trying to explain to people like what are the inputs that are going in um but yeah i mean inevitably there's going to be a skepticism on the part of the public i think about uh, a lot of these models because like there's a sort of general misconception about what their purpose is and how they function. So, and then they, you know, inevitably are quote unquote wrong because they didn't predict the future correctly. And then people say the whole model is, is useless. Um, but of course that was not what the purpose of the model was to begin with. So one of the things I love about your work and what make, and it follows up on John's question about uncertainty is journalists are really good at telling about what just happened or what happened yesterday. But you're talking about what might happen. Mm -hmm. So here's a story idea you already may be thinking about that because mm -hmm. universities and colleges all over the country are thinking about, should we open in the fall? So it seems to me that you have a model that would suggest what happens at a, at, at a place like Miami University when all these kids come from all over the country back, they're not in, you know, they're living in their own places, they're gathering, they're having parties on the weekends. Can you do a model that's going to show what might happen as we decide whether we're going to stay online for another semester or whether we're going to, you know, try to go back to some kind of business as usual? Yeah, Help I us mean, out here, Harry. I would definitely, <laughs> definitely lead, leave that to the uh, professional epidemiologist. Um, because, like, I'm not that, uh, I'm not a statistician for the story that we did on like the different disease models, we managed to find like a really basic SEIR model um, because like it has to uh, solve these like ordinary differential equations. And I didn't know how to do that. So fortunately, somebody so, uh, like a scientist, I think he was at like Los Alamos. He was a smart guy anyway. And so he had written the code for this SEIR model that we used it's far beyond my ability to do mm -hmm. myself. Um, but certainly like, it's a really important question. And I mean, as you mentioned, like it does seem, I mean, you know, if I think about my life as a college student and then add a extremely, uh, uh, infectious disease that spreads quickly, 
to that experience, I can imagine basically everybody getting sick. So mm -hmm. um, it definitely does seem like a, a very dangerous situation and recipe for disaster, um, particularly because like it doesn't sound like there's going to be a vaccine anytime soon. So I definitely don't envy the college administrators who have to deal with this. Harry, you have mentioned math and coding, two things with which most journalists don't get a lot of in undergrad and also are terrified of. I speak as a journalist who was thankful the only math classes I had to take were logic and statistics yeah. when I was an undergrad. So what advice would you give to journalists who want to try to work with visualizations but might be semi-scared of what goes into it, right? Because it does seem like it's this black box where I need to know all these things and I can't do it well. What advice would you give to someone who wants to explore this? So I had the exact same experience in undergrad. Like I had to take a math class for my to graduate mm -hmm. and I took logic. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Now, going back, like I wish I had taken more math classes because it ended up being like something that I use in my job all the time. And, uh, you know, there's like, there's just a knowledge gap between me and people who have had more formal education that I, you know, I work to close all the time and I wish I didn't have to. Mm -hmm. um, but that being said, like, so when I started doing code and uh, working with spreadsheets and journalism, like I didn't know much math and I still don't really know much. I know a little bit more. But um, yeah, I mean, like a lot of times you just like measures of central tendency, like average and median. Those are, those are like pretty useful <laughs> mathematical tools to, you know, help you try to figure out what's going on. And, uh, you know, you don't need to know a lot of math to be able to do those things. You know, any spreadsheet mm -hmm. tool actually will do them for you. Um, so a lot of times it's just about like using the tools that are available. Um, like you don't even need to know how to code. I did, I did a sort of data journalism pieces for a couple of years without knowing really how to code well. Um, mm -hmm. I used Excel. In fact, I still use Excel for a lot of data analysis. I mean, if I'm gonna do something a little more complicated or that needs to be reproducible, yeah, like I'll use R or I'll use mm -hmm. JavaScript. But uh, but a lot of times I still use Excel. And like, you know, I, I think that, and Excel's like, I mean, it's not great. And it, right. like, <laughs> it does introduce a lot of errors um, that like you have to be aware of, like it'll, change your dates for you with, without you wanting it to do that and you know, various other things that can definitely be problematic. Um, but it's like, it's still a, a better tool than nothing. Mm -hmm. uh, and so um, I definitely think like if you, if you can learn how to do a pivot table in Excel, like you're going to know a lot more than most other journalists. Like mm -hmm. if, if you want to start to use data in your reporting, just go online and, and Google how to use a pivot table. And suddenly you realize that like you have this new superpower that you didn't have before. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I just think like, you know, you learn incrementally. And um, mm -hmm. I guess it's part of it is like having the mindset of like, this is not too scary. Like, I'm just going to mm -hmm. try to learn one thing at a time and, you know, get better as it goes. Yeah, I, I'm going to ask the complimentary question. As, as <laughs> someone who got out of writing because I did despise the subjectivity of assessments when I was an undergraduate. <laughs> and... Uh, Decided that, you know, thank God there was a place for people like me that I didn't have to deal with it. But but yet now what I do is what I do more than anything else is right. You know, so what kind of advice do you give kind of to the people that are coming from the quantitative side 
that, that are doing data analysis and modeling, but, but still recognize the importance of that communication and, and integrating that, that kind of uh, the important part of the story that goes with this. What kind of suggestions do you have for, for, uh, for folks like me? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I think one thing you can do is read the elements of style. Uh, that's, that's a great book. I read it and it helped my writing so much. Um, you know, use strong active verbs, delete unnecessary words. Uh, you know, verbs are stronger than adjectives, stuff like that. Um, the other thing is like uh, empathy is the biggest thing, mm -hmm. um, both for writing and for making graphics. Like you have to have empathy with your readers. Um, things are just like hard to understand generally in life. And so uh, you have to work really hard to make things easy to understand, like really try to put yourself in the shoes of one reader and think like, what are some possible ways that this sentence might be difficult to interpret or this paragraph might be difficult to interpret and, uh, you know, just make it better that way. I mean, I, I really think like having empathy with your readers or your viewers can make your work so much better. Well, Harry, that's all the time we have for this episode. Thank you so much for being here. Yes, thank you, Harry. Thanks for having me. This was really fun. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. Sticks.